Welcome to ACME Talks and Live Events. You are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This talk has been recorded in front of a live studio audience. This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes, which may not be suitable for younger audiences. And the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. So you just have to bear with me while I open my laptop. And to quote Dan Golding, uh, I've got a slight case of champagne infection. So, uh, yeah. Um, Cool. Okay, so um, fantastic to be here. And it's uh, really excellent to um, have the opportunity to bring together a really awesome panel uh, to be part of uh, the forum here in association with Game Masters. Um, We've got three really excellent panelists today who are going to be exploring with me the notion um, which we've kind of broadly titled Beyond Sloganism. for the panel, but what we really mean by that is getting beyond the um, the kind of core principle of games as entertainment and starting to kind of rethink games at the edges of what they might be. Games uh, in their various applications beyond the standard entertainment product cycle that we're all very much in love with and accustomed to. Okay, so I'm what I'm going to do today is I'm going to just introduce. Um, each of the panellists, and then they're going to come up in turn and give a brief presentation. And then following on from those um, introductory presentations, we've got a series of statements which we're going to be using as a focus for our discussion. Okay, so I'm reading, so excuse me. Uh, Just to introduce um, our first panellist, Marigo uh, Raftopoulos is a management consultant to industry and government, and for the past 20 years, She's been providing business strategy and organizational development to the public and private sector. As a games designer, her serious game design, Galapagos, was was shortlisted in the national ABC TV serious game competition in 2009. Our second panelist is Morgan Jaffet. Morgan uh, is the founder of Defiant Development, a Brisbane-based independent developer. He was previously associate creative director at Pandemic Studios, responsible for games including Happy Feet, Freedom Force, which is an awesome game, and Homeworld 2. Uh, and then our final panellist okay, is Justin Brow. Uh, Justin is a researcher and industry strategy consultant for Australia's digital, digital media industries. He delivers programmes to Australian businesses and individuals to help drive growth in the creative digital economy. So, I'd like to welcome Marigo to the stage. She's going to be our first presenter. Well, um, I've just come back from uh, spending a month in New York for the Games for Change Festival. And um, if I ever had any doubt that there is um, there's a future for, for games um, outside of entertainment, it was, it's totally been, been vanquished. Because for me, um, what games 
have provided for um, the education sector, health sector, um, civic participation and um, a lot of other areas is that what Games has done is it's provided a, a new platform to actually understand what engagement actually means. So for the work that I've done, well, in the private sector for the last sort of 10 years using alternate reality games to now using serious games and, and different forms of digital games to actually introduce a far better form of engagement for not only the corporate sector but also education, training, health, etc. Some of the organisations that I've been that I've met and, and the designers and the developers um, over the last month um, in the States from all over the world, the passion internationally for what games can provide for these sectors is just is unlimited and it's only limited by our imagination and our perception of what it is that we can do and how far we can sort of push the boundaries. My um, in personal work in, um, in corporate, and I'll say the word gamification, um, goes back to the, the core principles of, of what, what, what business is going through at the moment. In the corporate sector, across both business and government, we have a serious, um, what we call an engagement gap. As you can see from the stats there, on average, only 20% of the average workforce is actually engaged on the job. You have another 40% that are actively disengaged, and the other 40% is like, meh, I'm here, work is okay, I'm not really sort of fully engaged, I've sort of come here to collect a salary. So what this actually means for um, not only business and government, but our society as a whole, is that we have a, a pandemic called disengagement with what it is that we're working with, how we work with each other, and what it is that we're doing in our communities. And the biggest issue that we're facing here in, um, in, in society is that we really need greater rates of innovation to solve some of the, the serious problems that we're facing in health, in education, in sustainability. And what we're looking towards is what we can understand from games, uh, game design, game development, that actually goes to the core of what engagement actually means. And some of the um, principles of, um, of how we use game design in a lot of these areas is, is a bit of a mishmash, and I think the games community, understandably, is sort of very critical with some of the, the ways it has been used. Um, different areas is, uh, is basically looking at branded games in sort of developing social games um, as part of a sort of learning development or marketing strategy. Using game mechanics out of context, you know, the points, badges, leaderboards, sort of uh, things that's been happening a lot. Or looking at um, what a lot of um, corporates are investing money in in uh, game systems by looking at how we can restructure uh, the whole network of how an organisation is, is structured, its systems, its processes to emulate more what happens in a game and what that principle is, is removing what business and management techniques have a top-down sort of pyramid approach to something that's a lot more collaborative and takes advantage of um, distributed intelligence which, which is how games are actually designed. Now, these are countless examples of, um, of how it's been used, both in my private work, but also publicly how some brilliant examples can be used to, to, to illustrate the power of games or game thinking and game dynamics used outside of entertainment. Everyone's probably heard of Folded, you know, 240 registered online users and within six weeks sort of solved a, a scientific problem that's been sort of uh, with, with scientists for the last 15 years. So that's been a great example of how you're using the power of engagement in, um, in playing games to actually solve a real-world problem. 
to another example which was used um, quite frequently in New York last week um, was using um, Make Money as a way to actually engage communities to, it was a fractured community with um, you know, racial tensions, all that kind of stuff. And then there's a, the, the economic decline from, the, from that um, town as well. So using a game, uh, like a treasure hunt, that enabled the community to come together, to understand, to develop sort of a much more of a, a holistic attitude towards what, what, how we engage with each other and our communities to actually create far better rates of, um, of engagement, less crime rates and much more sort of a, a pick-up in, um, in, um, in economic activity within the, the town. And we're going sort of from very sort of high budget, very sort of uh, uh, different views of, of how you actually engage your um, your customers. In this case, was Jay Z's launch of his of his um, of his memoirs of using a, a, a quite an extensive um, sort of playground of the whole city of New York to how you engage your your customers, not only just to buy your book, but giving them a whole holistic, multi-platform experience around uh, scavenger hunt around New York to actually not only sort of Increase the the level of marketing hype, not only for the book, but also what Jay Z wanted to do is to to reward his loyal followers with having sort of a, a quite a different experience. So using sort of that kind of sort of game dynamic to actually change what it is that you're currently doing, reviewing how we market, how we engage with customers is a is a um, uh, just a, something that has come out of um, what you guys have been doing for a long time, sort of engaging people through through game mechanics. I've got loads of other examples I can talk until the cows come home, but I won't do that. But that's just a quick snapshot of, of the kinds of examples that uh, business and government and um, a whole range of um, private and not-for-profit not sectors are looking how they can use games to engage people, to innovate more, to engage with not only what the problems that we are trying to solve, but also together to actually innovate our way out of some of the, the serious issues and social problems we're currently facing. That's it for now. Back to you, David. I'd like to welcome uh, Morgan Jaffet to the stage. Hi there. So uh, my name is Morgan Jaffet. I'm uh, from Defiant Development in Brisbane. Um, I've worked for a bunch of studios in the past. I've been a professional game developer for uh, a bit over a decade, and I've been a hobbyist game developer for all my life since, you know, since wandering around with my grandmother and coming up with stories uh, that took place on the bushwalks we went on. I love games. I'm passionate about games. I'm excited about games. I'm, I'm excited about what they can do. And, uh, and that's kind of a bit of the, the broader picture, I think, of, of what we're talking about here. Uh, Heroes Call is one of the games we made, which has just come out recently. We've been around for a couple of years, and we've had a couple of uh, mobile releases recently that have, have done really well for us. Heroes Call is a Diablo-style game for uh, for tablets and mobile. Uh, Ski Safari ha came out about six weeks ago, and has really exploded. It's an endless runner for uh, for, for mobiles and tablets. And the game I'm going to talk about most because it's the one that really uh, applies to the broader discussion we're having here, is, uh, is Walker, which was a game about war correspondence. And this is a project that's in development at the moment. Um, we, uh, we did a big push on it last year, and we're returning back to it with a slightly different scope to our original concept. But to tell you a bit about Walco and how Walco came about, uh, Walco was developed as a co-production between ourselves on the game development side 
uh, Tony Minatti, who was a journalist who'd, uh, who'd been in Timor, who'd worked with, uh, with Robert Connolly, who was the, the third part of that uh, involvement. Uh, Robert Connolly's the filmmaker who made Balibo. He worked with Tony in that context. They got to talking about, uh, about the risks that uh, journalists undertake. And that sent Tony away thinking. Tony teaches, uh, teaches journalists, teaches news safety and uh, started to think about how that could work in a, in a kind of game environment. And he was originally thinking about this as a training simulator for journalists. And the major drive for that was because of the dramatic changes that have happened in journalism over the last uh, 30 years. You know, there was a time when you needed hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equipment, uh, a cameraman, a journalist, a sound guy at the very minimum. And uh, that meant that only the BBC crew was was going into places like Timor. You weren't going in on your own without a, without a team. Um, what he was observing was that he was ter- teaching first-year journalism and uh, people could go off on, on their break, get a $2,000 plane ticket to, uh, to a hell zone somewhere in the world, a uh, $2,000 camera, and uh, potentially get themselves killed or potentially come back with a story. And he thought the training was, was well under where it, uh, where it needed to be. So... What we did is, is we really focused on building a proof of concept. And uh, I come from a games as entertainment background. Um, Tony uh, brought the requisite level of, of kind of knowledge of the scenario to it. But he was also thinking of it at, at this point as an entertainment game first and foremost with, uh, with training and safety applications as a separate branch as something that we'd work towards. And I think... You know, one thing that really surprised us, and uh, we talk a lot about kind of the broader gamification. I, th- I think there's a lot of terminology um, issues whenever we start talking about games breaking outside the realm of things that you play with a competitive element. And that's like, that describes a really small fraction of what the broader entertainment games industry is right now. Um, things like, you know, games like Heavy Rain which is really a cinematic experience. You know, it's not a win, lose or draw. Um, there's, there's a whole spreading, and I think we're so accustomed to thinking of the, the very literal definition of games. Whenever we start to talk about game mechanics and game systems and gamification, all these sorts of things, we bring a whole bunch of assumptions with, which I don't think are super useful. With Warco, what we found is that an FPS is obviously a fantastic toolkit for, for giving somebody a, uh, a rehearsal of anything. Whether it's, you know, to, to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, literally, is uh, first-person shooter technology is the perfect tool. And it's, it's really interesting how uh, both inexperienced gamers and experienced gamers found playing in a game where people are shooting at you, but you can't shoot back, but all you can do is shoot footage. And they're not actively out to kill you. But you also don't want to get in the way of the, the rebels who are invading. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it changes the tone of that experience quite dramatically. And I think that's, to me, the, the great opportunity we have uh, in games. We, we can put people through experiences without them having to live them in, uh, in actual fact. And that opens up a huge, uh, a huge amount of potential. And the sorts of things I get excited about with games... Uh, you know, you only have to see uh, any child who's, or, or adult who's played a lot of Pokemon and knows all, what is it now, 300-plus 
different Pokemon, their stats, their behaviour, their evolution. Do you realise you can learn a hell of a lot as you go, go along? There are lots of ways that we can make the things we want to do uh, more entertaining and more engaging to ourselves, and we're starting to get better tools for building those, those systems. Um, I think it's a really exciting world. I think it's very early days. You know, we're only seeing the, the very tip of these icebergs being touched on. But, uh, but like I say, I get, I get passionate and excited about games, and I'm really passionate and excited about what the next five to ten years will bring. So that's me. Cheers. Thank you, Morgan. Uh, and now, finally, I'd like to welcome Justin Brow to the stage. Hello, everyone. Nice to be here. Um, thanks, guys. Um, so I was just asked to put a few slides together to sort of get an indication of kind of the work that I do and sort of where I fit and where I, my, my perspectives are on this, this topic. So um, beyond sloganism, so what I'm interested in is, is this, and I'll explain what that is in a minute. Um, who knows what that, who's this guy is? Hey? It's Richard Hellerman. Yeah, so he's uh, the Senior Creative Director of VA at the moment. And um, he was asked a couple of years ago, what game are you most jealous of? And his response, this is a few years ago, was Brain Age. His quote's awesome. He said, I would like to be in a business where my game is prescribed by doctors, like Bayer Aspirin was to my dad after his stroke. This is how you impact the world and the bank account. So that's coming from him, right? So... To say that it's a periphery is uh, kind of nuts. Um, and that was voted one of the 15 most influential games of, uh, of last decade at number five, so it's pretty wild. Um, closer to home, um, there's also studios that are dabbling with this sort of thing as well, um, just on the side. I don't have to ask if you know what that game is. Um, now, this lovely lady is, uh, is doing it. And it's not a great picture for what I'm actually, the, the, the example I want to give you, but these guys have been working with, um, so obviously Halfbrick have been working with Neuroscience Research Australia uh, a bit um, to, to work out. Initially, it was for a tablet. Um, you know, the coders would work with the, the neuroscientists to, to, you know, scope it a bit differently, and it was actually working well for stroke rehabilitation. So... Uh, it's an interesting space, and, and if Halfbrick are into it, then, uh, you know, you know, Shamir Chenille's a very bright fellow. Um, you know there's something going on there. So this is, this is the, uh, the blurb. Um, new opportunities are claimed as a local and worldwide development, in the, blah, blah, blah. And the way that I've re-tagged that is, is there a role for games designers outside of the entertainment game sector? Um, fuck yeah. Um, Australian context... We've got a very, very strong economy here in Australia. Um, the rollout of the NBN, of course, is, is going to bring more people online and more piece of people engaging with the digital economy, and they need your help. Um, we've got, obviously got great local skills in games development right across the country. Um, and a drop in demand from large Oz development studios, so it means there's more indies around the place. So... You know, it's putting all that into context, there's going to be a great demand for people who need help in engaging in a digital economy with their audiences, and that's what you guys have got in spades. So basically, it's making technology more engaging. Now, this is something which um, is a big focus for me uh, and my, my colleagues, is innovation through collaborative co-creation. Um, it's uh, 
you know, working like you guys may, may have a strength in, in games design and you might partner with a company who've got great strengths in the other and it's where the, where the, where the, part, where the skill sets intersect, which is where some really interesting stuff can, can occur. So this is a bit of flint and this guy's a hammer. So if we're looking at it, if, you, if it can smack that, it can spark and then in the right environment, innovation can occur and that's where a lot of my work is at the moment and I'm loving it. So in this instance... That's, that's, that guy is ref representing every other industry sector. And this guy is representing the games design or interactive media industries. And what's interesting, like industry sectors can be whatever, you know, like tourism, mining, education, aged care, um, manufacturing, agriculture, whatever. You know, and it, what's interesting is what's brought to play when, when expertise from games design and interactive media comes and works within that and goes through that process and sparks some cool stuff and creates digital innovation. Um, as the digital sophistication of consumers heightens, so too, too, too does their expectation um, of, of user experience. You know, they're going to want to have a better experience with everything that they do. Um, user experience, I mean, you know, that's what Pong looked like, I don't know how long, 20 years ago. And the user experience now today of a, of a, you know, of a, of a tennis match is, is far different. Um, it's intuitive, engaging, compelling, enjoyable, rewarding, and stylish. And this is exactly the kind of stuff that, uh, and intrinsic qualities that skilled game designers have in spades. Um, so we've got the Thief, the Dark Project. Um, where's Warren Spector? Is he here? Hi, Warren. Um, and, uh, and Diablo 3, you know, set the all-time new record last month for the fast, fastest-selling PC game. Over 3.5 million in 24 hours, so it's huge. So how can games design be applied to non-games industry sectors? I just want to tell you a little bit about one of the projects that I'm working on, which is really relevant to the, the thing today. It's called ISIS, which is the Interactive Skills Integration Scheme. Um, and that's backed by the Department of Industry, Innovation, Science, Research and Tertiary Education from Canberra, and more locally, the Department of Broad uh, Business and Innovation, which is Victorian. Um, so I'll just, I won't go into it too much. Um, we might touch on it more in the discussion, but what, the way we're doing it here, we're working with a mob called Media Saints um, that you may or may not know. They're based down in uh, St Kilda Junction. Um, and a manufacturing company that's actually based in Bendigo called Australian Turntable Company. Now, Media Saints bring to the table games development skills, e-learning, film and TV, online broadcasting, web design and interactive media. So that's what they're really good at. These, are really good. These guys are really good at engineering, product design, manufacture, construction and international franchising. So it's a, it's a huge difference. But what's really interesting is what can be, can be created when these guys work together. And that's what we're exploring through ISIS. Um, a key thing with the way that we're approaching this, it's got to be balanced. So it's not a typical fee-for-service model. It's not as if, okay, here's like 50 grand to go and make a game for me. It's like really like a meeting of the minds. And in this, in this instance, it's uh, yeah, Media Saints and Australian Turntable Company and, and bringing their intrinsic qualities to bear and work together to, to create innovation through collaborative co-creation. Um, just quickly, this is another program that I'm working on called IMI, Interactive Media Entertainment. Um, that's, back, that's a QUT research project which is partnering with AFTERS, backed by the Australian Research Council and the Australian Council... Um, Council of the Arts. Um, and what's interesting is we're looking at companies like these guys here and possibly those guys right there. Yay, League of Geeks. 
Um, looking at, we're doing two things. We're like going to them with a bunch of research and sort of speaking with their senior staff and looking at how they approach creative innovation. And we're actually beginning creating something we're calling an innovation audit. So we'll be providing, you know, half brick, tantalus, mod productions and all that sort of stuff with an expert third-party researcher report on how it is that they approach creative innovation, which is pretty crazy and pretty cool. And what's interesting as well is um, on the second stage of it, we're working with the Australia Council for the Arts is actually doing artist, sorry, excuse me, doing artist placements into each of these organisations to see what sort of creative innovation can be brought um, from an external source to go through that process again. Um, so I'd suggest that you might want to. I mean, it's not for everybody. I know that. I know most of the people I speak to who go into games designers because they want to get into, they want to make the next first-person shooter, and that's cool. I like AAA plus titles, but the thing is, is um, the course skills that you have as games designers can be applied in every all these other industry sectors, and the, the demand for this is only going to go nuts over the next few years, and it will continue to grow. Um, just in closing, uh, Media Saints put this thing together, it's, you know, it's an online um, literacy development program um, called Knowledge Quest. And um, they won last week in Adelaide at Simtech, the Commercial and Business Award for Serious Games, so they're going to be going off to Orlando in the next few months, so it's pretty cool. So this stuff is happening here in Australia, um, and it's a very valid way to, for you to apply your skills. So is there a role for game designers outside the entertainment industry sector? Fuck yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Justin. Um, I think from those three presentations, we've got a really excellent overview of um, where, what you guys are doing, but also more generally about the context for the conversation today. So I'd like to invite the panelists up uh, to the stage and we'll move on to the next section. So in, in order to get, I mean, when you start talking about serious games and, you know, applications of games outside of the core entertainment area, you know, you know, you, some, you know, we get a little bit angsty and we start to think, yeah, but, you know, we don't want to dilute the focus. We don't want to lose what we have. And I think um, in order to give the conversation, conversation some shape today, we, um, we had some discussion and put together a kind of list of um, statements that we can kick off from uh, in order to break down that conversation. Um, so, um, also importantly, I stuck the hashtags just up there as well that are being used. So if people, uh, are, if you want to have follow-up conversations about this, Twitter's a really good space for that. So the first, um, the first uh, point that I put here, um, games can do more than just entertain. Um, from my point of view, um, it's it's, sometimes it's interesting. You look at the commercial AAA games industry and the entertainment industry of which you know, I'm a part, and I, and I look at it and I think, wow, even the, even the mainstream games industry has sometimes forgotten the entertainment focus itself, you know, but not in a positive way. It's like... You know, an endless stream of murder simulators is, you know, interesting to an ever-decreasing number of people. Um, I think, Justin, you've just addressed this question quite fully, so I might put it to the other two panellists. Games can do more than just entertain. 
interaction's great for all sorts of things. And, you know, look, <coughs> from my perspective, um, I take some issue with the shrinking murder simulator market. Um, <laughs> They're great. Because I think uh, the evidence is that there's a growing desire for those sorts of games and there's an, a huge growing market of people playing all sorts of games um, right across the board. But a, an interaction enables you to have an experience and not all those experiences are entertaining. They've, there are a few games that are frustrating on purpose. Um, Metal Gear Solid makes pulling out bullets when, once you've been shot a real pain in the ass because um, it's supposed to simulate that it's, it's a real pain in the ass. Uh, I, I didn't like that because I found it a pain in the ass. But, you know, <laughs> games, games can do a really broad range of, uh, of those sorts of interactions. I think in the broader context of the discussion we're having, um, as, soon as, you're, as soon as you're talking about having an experience, mm. what can you do with having an experience is, is endless, both in entertainment and outside. Mm. So. Yeah, I agree. And also... Um, the military um, have been using games and simulations since the 1950s to do more than just entertain, to, to actually do train and, and have those um, uh, fail safe or safe fail environments where you can actually sort of learn a skill without having to sort of go through the um, the actual experience. So that's um, and also um, games for, um, uh, for for learning as well, like. Um, one of my earliest personal experiences with, with games, which actually made me sort of a, a die-hard supporter of where games can go, is uh, with my, my, my son was initially um, diagnosed with a learning difficulty when he was younger, and uh, he became so disengaged with the school that well, I gave up on all the homework and just engaged him with just playing. We played Civilization for about six months, and his, his whole attitude towards learning just skyrocketed. His, uh, his literacy, his maths just improved out of sight by playing a game designed for entertainment. Mm. Uh, and when his school inquired about, well, what did you do? And I said, nothing, we just played games. And that's, uh, so he learned so much from that. In fact, he was actually misdiagnosed as well. So the school system thought, bottom quartile learner, you know, you know he'll be fine one day in life. But mm. he actually was, uh, after his, uh, his extraordinary change in his attitude and his school results, was actually... Uh, 95th percentile, but it was just he was needed to engage in um, in learning that was um, that was um, like, well, it's learning in situations. So he doesn't like to to, to hear something regurgitated. He actually likes to experience it. Mm. And what games do is that you experience something and you learn. And particularly for, with a lot of learners, are visual spatial as well. 30% of the population. So actually, and engaging through gameplay actually mm. teaches them a lot more about the content than just reading it and regurgitating it. Yeah. Um, you um, you had the uh, Quest to Learn yes. logo up on the screen. Does anyone know about that in New York? It's a whole school. It's a, a primary school, isn't it, yeah. that they're developing and, and all of the education is games-based. It's like got games mechanics behind it and stuff, huh? Yeah. yeah. So if you can teach by stealth, yeah. you know, be, immerse people in it and they come out of it and they've actually learnt something, then that's, that's pretty cool. And that's the key word there, immersion. Immersion. Yeah. I thought you were going to say stealth. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I think one of the key things is that a game puts a piece of knowledge in a context mm. that allows you to test that knowledge. You know, you're playing Civilization, it's like, shall I send my Roman centurion to fight that tank? You know, how's it going to go? <laughs> you know? It's like all of, the, all of the information in that game is um, in a context 
that um, builds curiosity. And I think sometimes the traditional linear histories that teaching is modeled on these 19th century ideas of like learning by rote and regurgitation, they lack that context. And of course, for, the, for, for people from a affluent background where sitting around a dining table with your parents who themselves are well-educated pro always provided that context. For many kids where the home environment isn't necessarily you know, an, edu an educationally curious environment, games actually provide something quite novel, which is this like, rich contextualization. And I think that's, uh, it, it comes down to the sort of thing you're teaching too. Um, Rote, I think, has been much maligned. My, my wife is a memory researcher, so this kind of stuff falls right into her, her balawick. But, uh, but Rote is really good for some things, but complex systems are best mm -hmm. understood when you can interact with them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of the reason SimCity's always been you know, touted as such a, a mm -hmm. successful example of, of this sort of approach, because uh, a city is a complex system. Mm -hmm. Even a light abstraction of the actual complexity of a city is still a really complex system. Mm -hmm. And you can learn about them best by going, well, what if I just put all the residential neighbourhoods next to the nuclear power plants? Yeah. Seems mm -hmm. awesome. Yeah. I think oh, shit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, one of the interesting things, I think, is that traditionally a lot of parents have been nervous about kids learning certain skills. Like, I'm super interested in Pokemon. Anyone that knows me knows how into Pokemon I am. And, like... One of the things when I've been researching Pokemon in the past is that parents were so super nervous about kids um, being into a kind of mercantile activity of trading and kind of like, well, I can swap you three Charizards for your gold, you know, Elekid, you know, not sure, maybe you'll have to chuck in something else, you know. Like, there's a fear that children engaging, engaging in a kind of economy, you know, it, it, there's a fear that that kind of corrupts the innocence of childhood. And I think... Um, games as a learning environment forces uh, parents and guardians to ask serious questions about what kids learn and, and asks them to kind of get real about those, no, those literacies and those knowledges. Mm. Mm. Okay, so let's move on. Who's your favourite Pokemon? It's really... That's like, a tough one. I, like, I really like the original set, like the original 128. I really like Articuno. Right. <laughs> yeah, somebody on Twitter pointed out there's over 600 now, and I'm yeah, yeah. completely <laughs> off base, which just goes to show how fast they're breeding. I like, <laughs> I like the really dumb ones, like Mr. Mime as well. Anyway. <laughs> um, so the next statement, game design belongs everywhere. It's not like maybe. What I'm, what I'm saying here is it actually belongs everywhere. Any responses? Yeah, no, or, or from, um, absolutely. I mean, game design is a is a product of um, of understanding social patterns and social structures of interaction. Um, game design is based on cognitive uh, uh, cognitive science and behavioural science. So it's just what what game design has done. It's just it's 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 beautifully been able to craft something out of what we already know about human interaction and take the best of that to to, to engage people. So, mm. yes, it belongs everywhere because it's come from everywhere. I I, I get some somewhat uh, excitable about the term. I think it's the loosest term <laughs> we have in our industry, um, and it's a really inappropriate term that doesn't mean anything, and I prefer not to use it because uh, I, I talk to, to people who want to be game designers a lot, and. That, that means any of a myriad of things. It generally means what I'd really like to do is be 
a director as in film but for games because I think that job is telling everybody what to do and uh, making them envisage my world for me, um, which is very much not what game design is and, and it's not kind of what we're talking about in this context. But level design is a different thing to systems design, is a different thing to UX design, is a different thing to lead design, is a different thing to creative direction, is a different thing to external communication of design. Um, the more we drill down and, and get granular about what we're actually talking about, the, uh, the better we do. And I think user experience design is something games historically do very well. Um, and it's the piece... You know, I'm, I'm pissed off by bad user experience in the world all the time. And, and both on physical things, like steering wheels, which are stupid. You know, why, why do you have to turn your arms around like that to go around a corner? That's just stupid. You know, they, if, if, if it wasn't for the fact that we're tied to this historical concept of, you know, it makes the, the gear move that moves the wheels we'd have them, they'd be like racing car ones where you turn them a little bit and you turn them harder and there's some uh, feedback and it goes, goes more. Um, those sorts of bad bits of user experience, those bits of friction in life, annoy the crap out of me. And, and I really want to see uh, that side of things expanding out. That's, that's one of the places I get excited about the opportunity where, where the world can do a better job of helping me you know, do the things I want to do. And that's primarily user experience. Then you get into systems design and, and incentive design and, you know, economics design. Um, and I think that Pokemon example is really good because we need to make sure our kids are wise about these kind of mercantile transactions because the entire world is trying to take money from you now. Mm. And that's the, the broad direction that everything's going to head. You know, free-to-play is, in a lot of ways, the art of trying to take money from you. Um, and that's what Zinger are absolute experts at. Um, it's, it's what, you know, it, it goes all the way down to, like, you know, um, the kids' free-to-play online worlds have various ways that they'll try and take money from you. That allows you to pick and choose what you spend on, which is great, but it also allows for things to blow out um, and irresponsible purchasing, and I think, you know, we've got to skill kids up real fast. It's not like you just... Uh, accidentally get your first phone contract and end up a couple of grand in debt, you can now blow things out big time. Mm. So. I think in, um, traditionally in the Japanese game uh, development system, um, they used to use the term planner quite extensively as a mm. substitute for designer, and I yeah. think the idea of planning is really useful. When I think about this notion of game design is everywhere, <laughs> I think about you know, the standard curriculum that, say, primary school kids are taught by a primary school teacher who has to be conversant in science, English, maths, and so on. And I think that notion of having some sense of planning and experience, which is a logical extension to a lot of the social studies and sports and things like that that kids do already, is quite interesting. But just actually saying, you're kind of doing games design, kids, when you engage in this planning of experiences. You know. Well, I guess that's the thing, too. I mean, obviously we're talking about electronic games, but you know, as long as there's been humans around, there's been games, yeah. You know, bang, bang a thing around with a stick or whatever else that you see, you know, kids doing in the schoolyard today. Um, so it's just that interesting that nowadays, as technology is starting to infuse every part of our lives, that um, that we have the capacity now with the, you know to to take the skills that have been developed in the games industry over the past say, well, I don't know, electronic games industry over the past say forty years. So, um, and then apply them into other every other area in, in, in the way we lies. Like basically, you know, he who makes superannuation sexy wins. You know, 
because it's boring. But if you can do something that's really cool and makes it compelling and engaging, mm. then that's the way customers are going to move. Mm. Mm. So sort of coming to the gamification issue in a way, friends of mine who are not gamers at all, not uh, you know, sort of academics and artists who aren't really into games, they got into the whole gamified running thing. I'm sure everyone's got friends that are like this, like, oh, I don't play games. And then they're like insanely competitive running hounds you know on on facebook you see their updates like oh you i ran 15 kilometers today and tomorrow i'm going to run 30 kilometers and you just think like where do they fit this in you know into their lives but it's interesting how like once games do have a more ambient pervasive sense it teases out um um a kind of uh uh an interesting games that's that's there even um among audiences that aren't naturally and or normally addressed by the standard entertainment as games mm. model. Mm. Now, a lot of this is also demand a pull as well. It's not sort of a games push thing because I think as society becomes a lot more um, sophisticated that we demand more of our experiences and interactions with um, not only sort of friends but also with, with uh, other, other, other people, with, um, with service providers, etc. So there is an increasing demand for better experiences, as you were talking about earlier. So that means that the supply side is starting to move around that and sort of looking for different ways, interaction design, game design, to learn from that to actually help improve those experiences for customers and stakeholders. I think, um, I mean, one area that everybody in this room will have experience of is the whole, like, for instance, online banking experience of the past... 10 years and the just user experience of something that you use pretty much every day or every other day. I remember early online banking in the UK in particular just being absolutely abysmal. And it's really interesting the way that they're developing their sort of visual language and so on. It really does draw from contemporary user interfaces. You know, so it's a really, it, it's totally appropriate that that knowledge base migrate over. Can I ask a question to the audience? Yeah, sure. Um, who here is actually doing stuff with games design which is not in an entertainment area. Cool. More than I thought. It's about 10%. Pretty good showing. Mm. What about people who are in, a, in, in entertainment game design? I'm going to close with you. Yeah, so it's wow. pretty good. Mm. Okay, next point. Pick bright. Thanks. So it kind of builds off the last one. Games and play are a literacy everyone understands. Yeah. Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree. Um, well, yeah, look, that goes back a little bit to the comment I made a little bit glibly before. Um, you know, games and play are just part of uh, our lives, aren't they? Mm. Really? Because mm. it's fun. Mm. Mm. But in a way, it, I mean, one of the things I want to tease out in a way is that I remember for a long time the conversation was, well, you know... Game, you, need, you need a special kind of knowledge to engage in game-like things mm. and that, mm. like, that's why games... It's the kind of excuse that's continually made for why games might take a particular shape or form. Mm. Do you think that we can confidently say we're past that point or do you think there are still literacy frontiers within games? Well, I think it all comes down... So the, the example I always use is, you know, I come from a gaming family. Um, I, I was raised on games... You know, my grandmother uh, plays Mahjong. Uh, my mother plays 500. Uh, we've always... You know, gameplay is a big part of, of our lives and what we do. Um, on the other hand, I have, uh, I have close friends who, you know, 
have very much the Protestant work ethic that games are something you put away when you grow up, ideally at around 12, and, uh, and get on to responsible things like hitting, sitting in hard wooden chairs and working hard, and, uh, and frivolous things are not to be engaged with. Um, I, I think at any point you see a generation's uh, games literacy defined by the, the broadest games of play, and you see that persist through their life. So, you know, bridge clubs cater to a certain age. Um, my grandmother plays Mahjong with a collection of other old biddies who read Agatha Christie books. And, uh, and when I am old, I will no doubt be playing MMOs in, uh, in some sort of, you know, net cafe for old people um, where, you, you know, where we, can play, where we can raid and then go sit out on the, the chair on the front and mutter at people in our strange foreign language. You know, because that's what old people do. And, and that's, that's, that's great. That's great. Old that's people it. nattering about raid tactics blow. Just the idea <laughs> of that blows my mind. Yeah. <laughs> um, and kids of today. <laughs> I think it's, um, if I can make yeah, a point. Um, obviously, like I was saying with the last 40 years or whatever, as the, as the game's development industry has, has grown and you know Australia Australia's massive gamers for instance and um, and that's being replicated or not replicated but it's been evident um, all around the world like there's a lot of people playing games all the time and the thing is, is there's these massive production values and these huge awesome looking great experiences that we experience when we're playing a game and then you, you, you finish that game and then you start to do your work and it's like oh god this is so boring you know, so there's a really good challenge there to make that stuff just as good as that, you know. Mm. And, and that's where society's headed now. That yeah, we've, yeah. even though we all understand games and play, our understanding of it is actually changing now mm. and morphing. That there isn't a distinction between work and play. That mm. there's a, the boundaries are much more um, nebulous than that. Mm. So it's you know, that's just changing. Perhaps more of an acceptance of the wider population to allow those boundaries to get a little bit more blurred yeah yeah and i think they're, they're happy for it to be blurred but i think everyone's wanting to know how to do it like mm. in particular with with corporations they say to me we understand that there's this you know that it's not work and play it's sort of both but how do we do it and that's where they're getting stuck and mm. unless we sort of show them the how they're just they're just going to be holding back until they have some much more sort of um solid answers mm. which we don't have at the moment mm. but it's um it's still in that sort of gray area the, the great thing about stuff that's technologically mediated is that pretty much by definition you can test if it's working. Mm. Um, and this comes to, down to kind of the analytics and economic side that's, uh, that's pushing a lot of change in the games industry, both in the kind of casual game space um, where people are, you know, aggressively A-B testing and rolling out changes on a minute-to-minute basis, but also, you know, over at Valve, <coughs> they're, they're doing much stronger analytics um, and Microsoft has had a very strong analytic foundation for, for a long time now. And uh, I think that makes it really easy to work out where these things work because you can roll it into your business and you can see, you know, if you've got a metric to, to measure, you can see whether you're getting the results you wanted to get and, uh, and you can encourage behaviour that, uh, that heads in that direction. So. I think that notion that a measurement is worth a thousand guesses is like super, super valuable. Um, and I think particularly analytics in games nowadays, I remember like um, the early days of like focus groups and user testing relied on a huge kind of culture of gurus advising companies that this is best practice or that is best practice. And nowadays, a small company of just a couple of people 
can use like TestFlight Live in their iOS apps and get amazing yeah. quality data yeah. from those kind of things. So it's I, I was having a conversation with, uh, with Christian yesterday. Um, we've recently started to, to pull down much better analytics data and having been in commercial game development for years where you kind of do a bunch of user tests and mm. you sit around and you pontificate about you know, what that meant that they did mm. that mm. and what they said and how that relates to what they did and what you should change and you take your best guess and you release it into the market and you call it good. Mm. Um, compared to that, having half a million people run through your game in the first week mm. and uh, realising that 8% of them don't get past the loading screen because they get bored at some point mm. um, and therefore your loading screen's too long mm. and, and probably pretty boring mm. um, is, is just amazingly valuable. Mm. It, it's, it's an incredible differentiation and I, I feel like now any, uh, any intended game design is a hypothesis. Mm. If you're not putting analytics into your project, mm. then you're just putting the hypothesis out there mm. uh, until you get data back you don't have any uh, any experiment, mm. so I, I think it's the most important change um, in working out whether your game is doing what you want it to do, and uh, and that will make all of us astronomically better game developers than we have been over the last 30, 40 years. Uh, not just because of all the kind of monetization and stuff that gets talked about a lot, but because we can have a theory about what we want a game to do and see if it does. It's funny, in, in pop culture, and particularly in some of the games, discussions and press online, there's this, there's this idea posited that the analytics culture and focus group culture is kind of in opposition to creativity, that's, that somehow going in blind and you know, steamrolling ahead blind is how you're going to get an authentic you know, mm. design that's true to your heart. But like, so th without fear of homogenizing it. Yeah, 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 totally. But interestingly, like when you look across art history, you know, a number of artists, you know, the Bauhaus group and so on, they, you know, the, the kind of data that we have access to now in our creative practice was the dream. You know, people like Le Corbusier dreamed of a way of kind of like having, you know, their audience conceptualize in all these various, you know, abstract ways and, so, and we lose sight of that we think of it in this very rudimentary way when actually it, it delivers us amazing power as creatives this is actually one of the key challenges for enterprise gamification is that there's issues within the workplace because uh, unlike an entertainment game you know you're opting to play whereas uh, in an enterprise you have no choice but to play so we have um, a lot of issues with certain workplaces that say well who owns this data you're collecting data on, on, a, on a workforce and there's a fear that it'll be used against them at some later point. So if they don't get the, the, beyond the level, they get right. sacked. So, so the data is really important for, for, for designing the experiences in the workplace, but it's particularly with the one organisation working with in Germany has a highly unionised labour force. We're stuck at the who owns this data and how is it going to be used. So, you know, and we, with that we can't... And gamify the, the certain processes that we're looking at without collecting the data because it's pointless so because you don't know what you're doing and what mm. results you're getting. It's interesting. I think that, I mean, that point is really interesting mm. in the sense that, like, workforce organisation, this drifts slightly off topic, but, like, workforce organisation stuff, the idea of co-ops and so on, at the moment games suddenly is flush with all this new data... <laughs> There's a whole new burgeoning group of indies who are actually saying, maybe I don't want to work you know, as, a, as a lead, out of touch with what I'm doing, answerable to someone in Washington, 
you know, and so on and so forth. It's like people are rethinking what it means to work at the same time as having a whole new set of information about what they've made. Okay, let's move on. Gameplay can be used to persuade, change, and influence people. Games for change. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes, uh, which is what um, it's uh, persuade is. Yeah, I mean, it's it, we've got to be really careful with the language as well because it can be used. I mean, how gamification has been sort of criticised that it can be abusive because it can sort of persuade you in the negative or it can persuade you to buy things that you don't really need and things like that. But um, it can be used in the positive, which is what the Game for Change movement is all about. To, um, it's, it, a lot of it is using sort of um, cognitive science and behavioural science just to, to make people a lot more aware or alert to, to what it is that they're... the, the contents that they're playing with to heighten the level of awareness of certain areas. So mm. um, it can be manipulated by the same sort of cognitive and behavioural patterns. So mm. you, you, you are sort of open to that. Um, so it can be used in the negative, which is what we're sort of really cognizant about. Mm. Um, but definitely, you can use it for, for more, much more positive outcomes, which is what a lot of us are working towards. I saw a game that was developed in Africa. Um, it was a soccer game, um, but the underlying tone was actually um, to teach the guys not to bash up their girlfriends. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. Morgan, anything? Yeah, I think games are hugely influential. I but. And, and the whole of... Uh, I, I was deeply influenced by the, the books I read when I grew up. I grew up in, uh, in a country town called Newlin, which is just outside Ballarat. I know we've got uh, Ballarat on the line, so I'll give a shout-out to the <laughs> people listening in from Ballarat. Um, you know, books were, were enormously influential to, to my upbringing, and uh, I think the stuff we're talking about, there are more people trying to manipulate you in uh, ways to take advantage of you than to do good things uh, right now. Mm. Um, and it's not just games, that's full stop. Mm. Uh, so everything you can learn about those tools and how they're applied in the world is useful uh, mm. because you need to build your own uh, defence against that manipulation. Mm. Uh, anybody trying to achieve a result will apply the best tools they have to get to those results. And there are a lot of, there are a lot of different results. Mostly they want your money. Mm. Um, and they'll manipulate you a lot to try and get your money. That's not the worst thing in the world. Um, mm. But uh, but yeah, you've, you've got to you've got to be aware of and uh, and understanding and cognizant of how these tools are used. And if we can yeah. turn them around and use yeah. them for stuff that's cool, then that's that's even better. Yeah, and it's also it's people use that in the negative. Uh, they say your games do this, that, and the other, but. We seem to be more forgiving of commercials and films and music and television that does exactly that as well. Mm. So, mm, but we they seem to be hitting games over the head with a huge hammer that sure. they're not using with, with the other mediums. Mm. I think when you know, every time every time I play a How Factory game, you know, or a Pokemon game, I'm persuaded of the massive amount of talent in that studio and and kind of humbled by it. And I think that's, there's, there's positive persuasion that comes from that. And it's clearly, clearly a company who is in control of their language mm. as a studio. And like, that, to me, is persuasive, that they recognise that and do it. They don't, they don't feel sort of scattershot. I think one context for me for this as well is that, it, you know, in the late 80s and 90s, it was very trendy to kind of sort of wish away the idea that media had a persuasive reach and see audiences as fully in control, kind of navigators, you know, able to agilely jump from media to media, 
fully discerning of what they are consuming. And we sort of diminished, we willfully diminished the conversation that, you know, film is persuasive, games are persuasive. They, they put out an idea. You concentrate on a movie for two hours. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, the more engaged you are, then the more easily you're going to be influenced. And yet... It's only now that we're kind of, you know, we're, we're sort of, re, you know, reluctantly returning to those conversations because we've got media in the form of Zynga games and so on that are brazenly employing, you know, uh, strong forms of persuasion in their, in their construction. I, I also think this ties into the analytics discussion in that now we're kind of breeding this, this Darwinian set of super-influence um, tools. And I, I think we're going to see a dramatic change over the next 10 years. Mm. And, uh, and it's for that reason that I think you know, we, we need to look at, um, reasonably seriously at, at, uh, at how we inoculate ourselves against the various mm. forms of persuasion that come up as part of the, the day-to-day. Mm. But it also m- it means that you know, those same tools are going to be able to be applied in really interesting ways over on the pure entertainment side of the business yeah. um, and over on the, the Games for Change side of the business. You know, it, it, it actually makes for, like, I'm really excited about what, what we can do when, uh, for example, Valve are, you know, using um, eye tracking to see when people's attention is waning mm. to make games that, that grip you more than any other game has gripped you in the past. Mm. And, uh, and I think... We're going to see some really cool stuff happen over the, the next 10 years. We're also going to see some really crazy I'm, I'm wondering about the um, development of like full f- whole legal issues about like laws being introduced, saying you're too persuasive. And you're not using it for good, you're being naughty with it. Mm-hmm. Japan so just banned yeah. uh, kompugasha, mm-hmm. which is uh, part of their card-collecting mechanics. So they, they have... Uh, they have effectively a random spin at the end of a lot of their games where, uh, where it will give you one of a set mm. and, uh, and maybe there's four hundred, you know, one in 400 chance of getting the final part of that set. But mm. if you've got, got them all, they make you very powerful. And, uh, and yeah, they banned that. And they banned that because um, they deemed it too persuasive. Wow. Mm. Mm. Okay. So as audiences move toward gaming and away from traditional broadcast media, advertisers and content producers will have to follow. So this is more from the perspective of you know, advertising design and events mm. and television production and so on. Mm. A little bit what Robert Murray was saying before about he's interested in looking forward to the way that um, you know, advertising content mm. done in really good ways is, is, is a huge opportunity. Yeah. I made I'm, Ian and I at Patingo Pictures made a game called Roller Coaster earlier this year and released it for Chapa Chups uh, in collaboration with Taboo, which mm. is an awesome agency down in South Yarra. And we, um, you know, it came out free and it had no in-app purchases or anything. It was just a, it was just a completely free game with three hours or so content within the game and. We started seeing reviews from Germany and Sweden and Russia and so on, where people were like, "It's not trying to sell me anything. It's amazing. Like it's a it's a game where they're not like sneaking in a little kind of in-app purchase and so on." And that was perceived by players as a major strength. And we were kind of taken aback. It's like, well, you know, people really care about this stuff, and there's a sort of dialogue between games that are free and genuinely free, and you know what you get and so on. Yeah. And I think uh, audiences, are, it's not sort of either or. They're, they're more, much more discerning and they're looking for multi-platform experiences as well. Mm-hmm. So it's not just 
a game and a film and music. It's it, or, or, but it's it's all combined into the one. That it's a, it's it's a that's an overall interactive ex interactive experience across many platforms, mm -hmm. not just one or the other. I think one of the top the hot topics in advertising design right now, which we have kind of one foot in at Pachinko, is um, story and authenticity. Mm. You know, people care so much now about an authentic engagement with a brand. You know, they you know people who have a lifelong relationship to a brand and have a living memory of multiple you know advertising campaigns and so on have a sense of when a new campaign is authentic and true to what the brand has established, and they care about it in the same way as they care about major game franchises. And developers have to be really mindful of that. And I think one of the, one of the reasons Adver Games historically have performed so badly is that they don't, uh, in their production, keep mindful of, the, of that authenticity to, to where the brand has been. Um, one of the things I'm curious about here um, is Warco's relationship to television mm. and whether you've had dialogue with broadcasters or... Uh, we certainly haven't had any deep dialogue with, uh, with broadcasters, but it's always been part of the, the broad intention. You know, having uh, Robert as a, a filmmaker on board and, uh, and Tony as, a, uh, as both a journalist but also as a screenwriting background... Um, there's there's an obvious chance for that that mm. to spread, and it, it was built with a solid franchise plan from from the get go. Um, it's always really hard because, you know, what what you'd love to do, and uh, this kind of spills over to the transmedia stuff. What you'd really love to do is build something across every platform <coughs> that, on each of those platforms, is is completely true to what that platform's good at. Mm. Uh, does a different aspect of the story. You know, there's there's Walko the game, which is connected to a website, which let, lets you, you know, have the videos that you've created, turn them into news stories, share them with your friends. That then goes into you know series, film, books, etc. Um, but it's really hard on just the kind of mercantile side of this to to get funding across all of those to happen simultaneously. Mm. Um, generally, you need a success in one to get the leg up on the other. Mm. So you you, you see, <coughs> I don't think there's anybody doing it like really well, mm. and I would love to see it done really well. There's there's bits and pieces where you go, oh yeah, Dark Knight had this great campaign attached to it, mm. um, but a lot of people have tried. Nobody's nobody's made it awesome yet, I th and I, th I want it to be yeah, awesome. I mean, those transmedia companies, they're still really young, mm -hmm. you exactly. know, and and in. You know, even as a even as a stand from a standard advertising point of view, they're really really young. They're they're, they're kind of you know s stepping from one project to the next, going up through a client chain to a, to a higher grade of client who will be able to command those budgets. You know, I think hide and seek in the UK are kind of like yeah. getting there, and I think in the next five years or so, you'll see a real uh, a sort of step change in the transmedia space when suddenly major budgets are kind of being commanded. I, I think it also comes across to literacy, and you need a director who's literate enough in games and interaction and wants to be in, in that space, mm. because you need, you need a vision across all of them. Um, mm. And I think it's, it's one thing to try and bolt those on afterwards. Mm. Uh, but there's film directors I often envy for their ability to at least, you know, wave around the I am the central point of focus, even that's not always true, but mm. at least there, there's this concept that exists. 
Um, and I think... And you think that lacks... That's not evident in games development? No, I... We've, we've got everything down to the single person or to, um, so there's there's plenty of examples. But I think when you get it to the bigger commercial side of things, mm-hmm. there's there's far less of it. And what I'm not seeing is any projects that are being pushed across both a- both axes, mm-hmm. film and game, by one visionary. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what I would start to get excited about yep. in terms of that that kind of cross platform stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm. I always regard it as a sort of like in this transmedia thing where you've got different screens and different ways of touching to your audience. It's like um, it's I don't know it's a dumb analogy, but it's like it's a, the taste you get from watching the movie has to be exactly the same taste you get when you're playing on your mobile or whatever, and that's the essential quality or the essential essence of that particular special source. The special source <laughs> of that particular um, property. Yeah. yeah, I think what I mean in terms of it's, it's been a discussion with game masters the notion of auteurs and a creative visionary and um, Warren raised this really useful analogy yesterday of kind of drawing a box that, it, that he creates for um, his staff to kind of play in in order to de- define the space. Mm-hmm. I think in advertising design, um, when you start to move into transmedia, you, you exactly right, need that person who can have that creative vision across all of, all of the mm-hmm. various media, but have the capacity to bring that special quality that is authentic to the property to all of those things. So know what it takes for an event to have that flavor. Know what it takes for a game to have that flavor Mm -hmm. and for those two things to make sense in relation to one another. Okay. So I think this is the last question before we open up the Q&A. Um, game developers should take responsibility for their content. This is really in the wake of E3 um, and looking at the general trends where you have a a risk-averse development culture matched to what some might say actually quite irresponsible content. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to ask the general question about responsibility in game development. And I'm not just thinking AAA entertainment products. I'm thinking... You know, responsibility in pervasive game design and in educational game design. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, um, <laughs> but by the same token, I'd kind of like to see you know a, a bit more punk in our game development. You know, I'd like to see a bit more totally irresponsible, you know, anarchistic noise amongst what goes on. So, um, so I, I'll split my answer. <laughs> Yeah. But what is is punk is is putting a game like Echo Chrome on the on the PS3 or like say you know one of the Pixel Junk games is that punk to have a machine which is insanely powerful but then pitch something really muted? Well, the Pixel Junk game games are all prog, so yeah. they can't be punk. <laughs> yeah, <that's true>. um, <laughs> but uh, but <clears throat> but um, I think it is, and I think we see some punk stuff. Like Cactus does some really kind yeah. of punky stuff, but. Uh, I just want to see that get louder. Yeah. More amps. Yeah. Go electric. It's kind of like where can you... Where it's, it's interesting. It's like in music. When it gets gross and gets crazy, where can you go? You can kind of go intellectual or you can go artful. You know, it's like you have to go somewhere else horizontally. And I feel like games is in that space. It's like when you've got Lara Croft, like stabbing someone in the throat multiple times, and then you're being told that you're looking after her, and there's all these mixed messages. It's like, where do we go? You know, and it's the same, 
it's kind of the same with pervasive games. It's like you hit a certain scale, or you hit, you know, you or you you saturate your audience. You know, you run three events in Manhattan, and it's the same crowd every time. You know, where do you go? Anywhere but Manhattan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it. It's, I think it's sort of we touched on this a little bit before with respect to, and it's like whether you know you. you monitoring the stats and all that sort of stuff and it becomes like a finely tuned science yeah. to really get into the brains of your audience and so yeah look I'd agree that as those capacities are harnessed and improved um, then yeah it's a massive responsibility for the games designers themselves to you know and that's I guess that's where that silly comment about the laws came in because it's like um you know, it, I don't know, I'm seeing some sort of like big brother police, like mind-altering state perhaps. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. But it's, um, but yeah, there'd be, as, as those things improve, then so should a responsibility for the, to wield those tools that, um, responsibly. I kind of, yeah. I always think about games, sorry. That's, sorry, Kat, go for it. That's right. No, for me it's, it's two parts to this because I think game development as an art form should be just that, mm. should be ex- expressing what the developer feels, it, it, their interpretation of what's happening in society. That's as uh, the responsibility for any artist is to be honest and to be raw and, and to provoke. I think mm. that's really important mm. that we maintain that. On the other part, with um, Games for Change and for learning and development, yes, we need to take responsibility because we need to be sure that we're persuading in the right way for, for certain outcomes. So, so yes, so for... Um, as an artistic form, yeah, just go for it. Um, but uh, in terms of uh, where you are persuading people in for certain positive outcomes, then we need to be quite responsible in that respect. Yeah, I think one of the big things that's came up, you know, over the past few days also is like the sheer economic and competitive pressure of games mm. generally. And it's like one of the things I think about in this the moral question of responsibility is like. If you're, an in, if you're a game developer and you're totally passionate and you've committed to a platform like iOS and, like, Joe Bloggs over there is doing, you know, analytics-based, free-to-play, whale-exploiting game design and they're doing really well and Dude over here is doing the same thing and you're like, oh, you know, I'm going to make my game and sell it for $19 on, and you just get no traction, like... Like, what do, what do people do? Do they leave games? Do they just mm. push their thing and hope that the message gets out? It's a really kind of... It's a, it's a pressure cooker. I, I think it, it is. And at the AAA end of the, <coughs> the kind of development we see, um, there's a very rarefied atmosphere. And I think it's heading... You know, I always bring up the saber-toothed tiger analogy because saber-toothed tigers evolved multiple times through history because teeth are good for you know a cat predator and big teeth are better. And then at some point, really big teeth are stupid and uh, <laughs> and they die out. And and it just keeps happening. And uh, and I see games do that every now and then. And I worry a little that the the triple A with everything I saw out of E three, you know, there's this whole kind of everything feels like hostel. You know, it's mm. it's all this kind of gruesome impact, violent stuff, and I, I think that's heading towards a small niche. Like, I actually don't think that's broadening things out. God of War, which was always over the top, is now over the top and really uncomfortable making, mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. I totally, you know, everybody can do what they please, but... Uh, Scooping but, out an elephant's 
brain with it, photoreal all, reference you know, it, all of these things <laughs> and, and just the sadness of the, the cyclops that everybody's ganging up to kill in that first video um, you know <laughs> he's, he's a big sad old chained up guy Why, what? you know it's like Shadow of the Colossus but the other way around um, do you know the crazy, the crazy thing about that in Ray Harryhausen films the cyclops is always the good guy and he's the kind of like reluctant hero that affiliates with the humans in the story and they use the Harryhausen stuff as a reference but then they make him the bad guy it's like well it's also so much more impactful than Harryhausen stuff like yeah. you know and, and like I say they're, they're pushing a lot of the, the visual fidelity stuff and the, the realism and Last of Us is also doing the, the brutality thing I just find those are games that I can't play with my family and not feel uncomfortable Mm. And I want more of those, but maybe it's just that I'm old, and you know, um, you're old <laughs> compared to the market. Old, a little older. Yeah, right. um, it's interesting. There's a whole innovation conversation that was had this morning, and from outside the games industry, looking in, innovation is often discussed in terms of like novel mechanics. Like, oh, isn't it cool that in Mario Galaxy you can kind of switch gravities as you jump between planetoids? You know, when you when you're when you're reading Game Developer magazine and following games industry biz and so on, innovation that excites people and you know hundreds of thousands of words are written about are things like innovation in monetization, innovation in blood rendering, you know, and like guts, you know, guts physics and so on. And it's like there's a completely different you know index of what innovation is. Well, I think you know. It's the same if you read film industry. You know, there's yeah. a lot of talk about cameras because tech is always interesting yeah. to, to techies. Mm. Um, that's that's always going to be the case. Mm. Um, and it, you know, people just talk about the challenges they face. But the the kind of point that I wanted to touch on is, I think there are all these economic pressures, but I also think the market is far wider and far more diverse. Like the the uh, expensive iOS game example you gave, you know, Sword and Sorcery is the perfect way to do that, and mm. it's an awesome game. Mm. And um, budget realistically is you have to ha have some consideration of I want to spend this amount of money, and therefore I should get it back. So if you're making something really niche, then I think spending thirty million dollars on it when you've worked out it's just for the you know the four people who want a hardcore you know punk iOS experience. Yeah. It depends that's how much the wrong you sell budget. It for. Well, that's true. If, if, if they'll pay, uh, yeah. if they'll pay ten mil a piece, yeah. then yeah, you, yeah. you're gold. Yeah. Justin, you do a, you do a lot of training and development with businesses and individuals to get their to kind of tease out and you know get their entre entrepreneurial kind of spirit going. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there's a gap in the market for a lot of indies that um, could be addressed by um, more kind of focus on that in that area for that, to enable them to reach a wider audience? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked that question. Part of what we're doing... Yes, is the answer. Um, part of what we're doing with ISIS is actually creating something we're describing at the moment as the ISIS integration framework which is a bit of a wank, but it's um, the idea, it's like a how-to guide um, for particularly developed for interactive media companies or game development companies that's sort of thinking, you know what, I'd really like to branch out and, and do some other interesting stuff, but I've got no idea how to do it. 
Um, so what we're putting together at the moment, and it's based on a lot of international research, what PhD researchers on stuff like design thinking and um, business transformation models and all that sort of stuff. It's solid as all hell. Um, and we've tested it out through the integrations that we've done through ISIS and we've got a lot of feedback from business experts and, and the like. Um, and that's going to be coming together pretty soon. Um, and there's a whole lot of steps that you go through that. You know, like how do you identify a company that you might want to partner with, for instance? What are the skills that I require as a, as a games developer who wants to move out into this collaborative co-creation area? What are the key skills that I need to be able to front up to a possible partner and go, look, these are the skills that we've got, or what are the other skills that I need, or, or all that sort of stuff. And then processes of, of company familiarisation, like how you work together to go, you know, it's that, it's that whole thing about, um, I'd never thought of that factor, you know, where, where you're sharing your knowledge and you're sharing your skills, like, I know this, this and this, I know this, this and this, and then through that process you identify, like, some really cool thing that's never been done before. Mm. Um, so, yeah, look, there's a gap. And um, maybe this document which we're putting together um, can help address it to a certain extent. We're finding the same thing that a lot of marketing organisations and business organisations wanting to experiment with this will employ a game developer to help them with a marketing challenge or something like that. And often the relationship has been less than productive because there are certain skill sets that, that are missing. It's almost like yeah. a different cultures. Yeah, yeah. A, a, absolutely. And it's mm. more that the onus is probably going to be on developers to understand a little bit more about marketing um, and business development from another organisation's point of view. So I, mean, well, you know, I, I taught games design for eight years in the UK and one of the things with game students I always encountered was that they have a, you know, in my experience, game students have a very low critical understanding of the way advertising design and marketing and so on works and just saying to them you know a brand is different from a logo Mm -hmm. and that a brand is like a set of values you know ultimately that you're going to you know decide upon Mm -hmm. you know the the values that you're going to operate within as a company and they'll individuate you and differentiate you Mm -hmm. and that your logo is really just a mark you know and like getting developers to think about that and interestingly though that pulls against a lot of the really powerful tools that game developers use nowadays to talk about their game you know you know twitter has a certain patter to it people talk in a very similar way it's hard to have a distinctive voice and i think the genius thing that sword and sorcery brought to the table was that kind of twittering in that very particular kind of Conan the Barbarian language, you know, because people are suddenly thinking there's ideas here contained in a style which, you know, feels fresh and different. Mm. Yeah. I think Oh, no, that's all right. There's also different approaches to working as well, which I've found that with a lot of organisations, well, particularly from the corporate side, there's they have plans that they go to. This is the objective, this is the time scale, and at the end of it, we want you to produce a game. Whereas the developers in there, much, very much used to more of an agile project methodology mm. method, mm. and it just doesn't fit into the mm. current corporate culture of how they manage projects versus how a, a, a game developer is used to managing a process as well. So there's a lot of, um, not only the ideas process and communication, but also how to actually work. And I think in this instance, organisations can learn mar- far more from a, a more agile methodology mm. that game developers are used to working with. But that's a huge cultural shift for mm. the corporates. 
What's the? Did you mind? Um, what's the? What's the? You, you deal with a lot of corporate clients in this space. What? What is it? Are they coming to you just saying we want a game because they've got a game? Yes, more often is? than not. Yeah, and absolutely. they've got no clue at all. No, no, no they don't. No, mm-hmm. they, they know that they need to engage and do it differently. But a lot of it is the the me too. There's a lot of innovators out there as mm. well, but most of them is the the me too. Mm. So, got to deal with that. I, I think in in the hardware cycle of mobile. Um, which is now so fast, mm. you know, that Me Too culture is kind of exploding, you know, um, publishers, you know, we've, de- we've dealt with publishers and stuff like that who are like, oh, you know, we really need to do this and then we really need to do that and you're like, whoa, hold on, how does this actually interact with really awesome things that you've done in the past? Is it true to it, yeah. you know? Yeah. And that's a very good point because often they'll come and say, this is the problem and we want a game to fix it. Mm. And after analysing the situation, you know, I have to tell them, you don't need a game, you need to fix your shitty product <laughs> because that's the problem. The game's not going to fix cool. that. So, and that, that's a lot of the, the whole thing, that they want a game to fix a problem that a game won't be able to fix. I mean, a game will enhance awesomeness, but it's not going to fix a problem that needs to be fixed somewhere else in the system. And that happened, I mean, in education. I remember terrible CD-ROM learning oh, games. Yeah. You know, where it, where it would be like, oh, do this, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you'd be thinking, who is, who's the audience for this thing, you know? Because yeah. you know, by that point, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm playing Master System. You know, it's faster, it's funner, it's quicker, it's funnier. You know, this CD-ROM thing feels weird to me. Yeah. Okay, any, any final statements from the panel before we open up? Oh, no, I'm, I'm looking forward to questions. Cool. Okay, so have we got roving mics? We have one Ready up here. Um there's a question here right in the front. Hi, um Really interesting uh, discussion here. Um, it, it got me thinking. Um, one of the, the things that I'm really interested in and passionate in is um, interactive narrative in games. Um, it's uh, it's kind of a niche area. It shouldn't be, but it is a niche area. Um, I was just wondering uh, what do you think the role of interactive narrative is outside of games, maybe even in a training environment? Can you explain to me briefly what you mean by interactive narrative? Um, Am I being essentially stories, um, interactive stories in games, um, character development, world Mm. development? Mm. Um, I don't know. Do you want to? Yeah, we're developing one at the moment. Um, It's um, it's to it's targeted at teaching children who have got um, um, particular nervous disorders and things like that. So it's really important for them to to choose um, to, to design a narrative around their own personal stories. So in terms of um, games designed for for healing and wellness and in, in that kind of space, mm. it's it, that's a really important area because it it's it helps to personalise their journey through that through that story, or through through the game. So t- yes, but that that's really important because it, it personalises the experience and it makes them uh, it puts them in control over their healing process as well if they own that story. Yeah, look, I think there's a huge market for it. I mean, in, in, it's particularly in, in services, if service industries that are you know really complex. You know, like I've got in mind like uh, ambulance services or something like they have might have some sort of really complex. Thing. You know, it might be you know the bomb blows up at the MCG, heaven forbid. And um, 
you know, and what the situations that go through that, you know, and that can be pretty complex, you know. So that so the, the the more immersive, the more compelling and um, of the interactive narrative that you've got, that's a huge asset to to make that to engage your audience more and to help the t- you know teach them. It's massive. Yeah. Question down here in front. Yeah, um, Mehmet here. Um, thank you very much for the discussion. It's great. Um, this is a comment slash question, so it might take a little while. Hopefully, it won't take very long. Um, it's just that when you guys talking about um, the how audi- there was a lot of talk around the audience focus, and there was a lot of you know um, getting the. Um, 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 the, the blood pressure of the you know the audience to see, and we're talking about Valve how they're employing all, all sorts of different techniques to see what's working for people and what's not working. And um, but I find that a little bit scary in a way that making it almost a game into so much of science than art, and um, that kind of is coming down to my question about do. You, feel like the term games now is mm. still relevant mm. for this industry because we're talking about interactive experiences yep. and there are a lot of categories within that which some of them are games like the traditional sense of okay there's a formula of you know you follow um, like a backgammon or mojang that you were mentioning before but um and so the person before was asking about a question about the narrative in a game and for me personally, I play games to experience different things and worlds. Um, um, summing up a lot of things that you guys touched on, like the punk of the industry and all that. For example, I'm thinking Tim Schafer. Like, I think that's a punk movement with the whole Kickstarter and bring back the adventure and uh, and that kind of thing. And uh, we were talking earlier with a few people, Warren Spector, doing like giving the finger to the industry, saying, "Hang on a second, I'm going to make." Mickey games, you know, like mm. I don't care about shooters or something like that. Do you know what I mean? I think that's really great to see. And the question is... There's a question. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, so can we divide the industry into different bits like interactive experience, for example, story in the world and the games which revolve around gameplay more so and serious, serious interactivity like um, education and all that kind of stuff? No, because it all spills over across the... You know, I don't think those are useful classifications because there's so much spillover. Mm. I, I will say... So here's my take on all of the uh, user-focused stuff. Um, I, I don't think it detracts from the art. And uh, I think games is a craft and an art. And understanding the results of your game makes you a better craftsperson, which enables you to be a better artist. Do you think then, Morgan, that um, if fine artists were able to monitor the response from their audiences, they'd be better fine artists? Look, some artists do, some artists don't, but I I guarantee you a lot of concern about what people are saying when they go to the gallery. Sure. And and I guarantee you that has an impact on their work and and flow through. Um, Also, one of your comments in that um, about there's more science than, than art, etc. I think the, the industry is now, it's a, it's a multi-billion dollar industry and requires a lot of investment. So the science has emerged as being as important as it is because investors want to see some kind of return on investment. Yeah. So that's why the science is there, whether we like it or not. I like Mehmet's question about um, whether or not the term games is appropriate, I think. Oh, yeah. 
you know, like I shirk away from like don't even say gamification to me. I hate it. Don't. <laughs> um, you know, like this, and you know, serious games. I mean, a game is, you know, I mean, I'm talking to games designers here, but like a game is like fun, isn't it? It's entertainment. Um, what we're talking about is a different thing. I'd suggest that it's uh, it's uh, not necessarily the most appropriate term to use games in, you know, training. As a, as a training exercise. Is that a game? No, I don't reckon. Um, but I don't, like the whole globe's got nowhere near um, getting a good term for it at this stage. Yeah, and, and I hate fun too. Fun. <laughs> because, fun. No, yeah. and, uh, and entertainment. And this has often been pointed out. He hates fun. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Because I don't think, you know, even entertainment games <clears throat> have to be fun. Like, fun is, is so individual too. Mm. Yeah, it's true. When you're, having, when you're working with a bunch of designers, somebody will say, let's do this, it'll be fun. And what they mean is, let's do this because I like that sort of gameplay. Yeah. And I find it fun. I find it fun to search hidden corners for stuff. Mm-hmm. And if that's not the right decision for your game and your audience, then it's the wrong decision. Fun is another... There's all these fuzzy terms, you know. And we use them because that's how we communicate. If we had to be crystal right. clear, we'd never get anything done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the only thing I've got to say about it is, like, you know, gamification is... Oh. But, but the only other way I can explain it is um, applying games mechanics to non-entertainment industry sectors... That's fun. And it's kind of clunky. <laughs> I think in terms of analytics as well, one thing to really think about is that in an age where, you know, if you're going to be developing a, a game for the next generation of hardware and it's a complex game, you're talking in some cases budgets of $80 million and up, you know, to make those games. You know, investors and publishers are always looking at ways to hedge risk. And if games are not just about a release moment, but actually a sustained aftercare where DLC and so on and updates are part of the, you know, the lifeblood of that game, having data is going to be something that an investor requires of a developer. And if it's happening at the AAA level, it's going to be happening. And I'm, well, it is happening at Chilingo and you know, the much smaller scale. You know, it's about the risk management of investing money in a production you know, and not just for the moment of delivery, but for the life cycle of that game. Okay, one more question. Someone's got a mic. Go for it, mic person. Okay. Um, I just wanted to develop a bit further the discussion about this last statement of game developers should take responsibility for their content. Um, I think it should be probably changed or developed a bit further something like shareholders should take responsibility for their content. Um, most people that work in a professional role of game developers work for companies. Um, companies are optimized for shareholders, and hence most game developers don't really have responsibility of their con- for their content. And we call it indie, but we, and we re- refer to independent, where most game developers are not really independent. They're, it depends on how they're funded generally. They're either funded by a publisher, funded by a platform holder, funded by an investor, um, funded by advertisers, and all of these are not really independent. They're set in a lot of rules. Even funded by the crowd is not really independent, but that's probably the most straightforward way of funding yourself. So to me, it seems that it's a bit misleading because most game developers that are at least in this room, at least at some point in their life or most of their life, most of their professional life, worked for companies and if they were not shareholders in these companies, they really didn't have a chance to take responsibility for their content? Mm. Yeah, I'm sort of with you. Um, I think there's 
I think there's heaps more indies than you than you believe. Um, I mean, who here works for big games development companies? Okay, and how, who's here as indie? It's double. That's that's a very Australian. It is uh, Australian. Thing. Yep, that's for so sure. It, it has to sure. be said. Yep. Um, and look, you know, I'm really sympathetic to to that perspective because there's nothing worse than responsibility with no influence. You know, if you're responsible for the, if, if you're being held responsible for the things you don't have any control over, then that seems unfair. And I, I would say that you know you're absolutely correct. The people who uh, have the ultimate decision-making power should take responsibility. But I also think it's a really hard discussion to have. These game developers should take responsibility for their stuff about triple A's, because triple A's yeah. have an entire PR de- department whose job it is to tell you what they think you want to hear, you'll never get a straight answer out of them. And, and you know, if we're talking about the Tomb Raider stuff, you know, there's, there's been one comment on the floor by, uh, by a marketing person, which was then turned into a story which is inaccurate but is used as the base for every future discussion, which was then retracted, which, you know, it, the whole thing's more complex and nuanced, but nobody's having a complex and nuanced discussion about it. And... Uh, and, you know, whenever you're dealing with a big company, all you're going to get is spin. You know, that's, so big companies <coughs> spend their entire existence trying to avoid taking responsibility for anything they're doing, mm. um, at least on a public, you know, tangible front. Mm. So I, I don't think it's a worthwhile discussion to have about AAA developers. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, it is a really worthwhile discussion for all the indies to, to be having and to mm. be thinking about. So. Yeah. And I totally agree in the non-entertainment space as well because there are so many um, people involved in that the game development project. It's not just the developer, it's the, it's the investor, it's yeah. the content specialist, etc. So, yeah, it's a joint responsibility, definitely. Okay. Um, I'd like to thank our panel uh, for providing such excellent... Uh, you know, thoughts and stories from their experience. And also thank you to the audience for their excellent questions. Thank you. You have been listening to an ACME podcast. For more recordings of talks and live events, go to ACME channel and the ACME website.